As we come to chapter 2, it starts with uh, an important word, therefore. It's a telling word. It could be translated on account of, on account of these things. In chapter 1, we learned that the Son of God is an amazing figure. You look in your Bible with me, and I was reflecting on that this morning in verse 3 of chapter 1. This sun is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's being. He upholds the entire universe with a powerful word. And after having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And God, in the exaltation of his son, Jesus Christ, gave him a name that is above every name. Thus, what the author is doing in chapter 2, verse 1, first word, he's saying, on account of all of these things that you know about Jesus Christ, the, the Son, you need to do something. You need to do something. In the section this morning, the author gives a strong warning to his readers. If you were to leave our parking lot this morning and head south on Centerville Turnpike, you would not go very far until you start running into road signs, warning signs. Uh, now, I have never taken it the whole way to the bridge, but if you know this, the Centerville Turnpike Bridge is out. It's been three months already, and if you come from North Carolina or Great Bridge, you, you have three months left, okay, until I think this thing is fixed. But you know those signs, they start out and they warn you, they caution you, they say, you know, in two miles or so, the road will be closed. But uh, as you keep getting closer, the signs get more direct, right? They should. And now, again, I've not gone the whole way down to the bridge. But normally, you will, at the very end, get signs like this. Road closed. Warning. Proceed no further. Okay. And by the time you read those signs, it is clearly obvious that if you keep going, there will be terrible consequences for you and or your vehicle, right, if you keep going. In this passage, the author of Hebrews begins the warning signs. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 is, is uh, the first of five warnings in the book. Remember, the book is laid out doctrinal sections, then warnings, doctrine, then warnings. And the theme of the, these warnings will be do not fall away from Jesus Christ. Very urgent warning. And so this morning, as we look at this first warning, this is a very serious challenge to those of you who profess the name of Jesus Christ. You claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. This warning is for each one of you. As a matter of fact, I think that the author of Hebrews has been preparing us for the warnings in different ways. One of the ways he's done that is in chapter 1, he talked so much about angels. You remember this? Chapter 1, he compares Jesus is greater than prophets, but he's also greater than angels. And so as 
a form of introduction this morning, I want us to think about that for a while, while, and I want us to ask the question, why? Why is there so much in Hebrews chapter 1 about angels, and why compare Jesus to angels? And you know, there are different ways that you can answer that question. Some people believe that the author of Hebrews is confronting some false teaching about angels and their connection to the Son of God. And it may be that that's true. Um, there, 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 it may be that this church is being influenced by Jewish people who felt that angels were superior to the Messiah. There's actually a, a Dead Sea sect of Jewish believers who uh, believed that there were two Messiahs. One Messiah who was a king, another Messiah who was a priest. And their teaching was that the kingly Messiah was subjected to and under the priestly Messiah, and that both were under the authority of Michael the archangel. And so it may be that the author's confronting some false teaching about angels, but there's nothing in Hebrews that would really verify that. It might also be that there were some people in their church that he's addressing here that were worshiping angels, that they were infatuated with angelic beings. I think of what Paul warns the Colossians about in Colossians 2 and verse 18. He says, uh, let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and the worship of angels. Worship of angels. Matter of fact, some people believe that the author of Hebrews wrote this book originally to the churches of Colossae or Laodicea to address or deal with their worshiping of angels. But again, I don't think there's much in the book that would make us think that. I think there's a much better answer, and here it is. The better answer, I think, is that Jesus or that the author of Hebrews is continuing to declare that the revelation that comes from the Son is greater than God's revelation that's come through the prophets and or angelic beings. You see, many Jewish people believed that angels were mediators of God's revelation. That angels often mediated God's word to man since God was completely unapproachable to them. You know, since, since God's completely unapproachable, he sends angelic beings to reveal his will and word to us. Further, in the Old Testament itself, you could go back and you could, you could see that God used angels to proclaim his word to different people. To Hagar, for instance, and Abraham, and Jacob, and Balaam, and Gideon, and Elijah, and Zechariah, they all were given revelation from angelic beings. But more importantly, the Jews believed that angels were the ones who brought the law of Moses to the Jewish people. And there is good reason for them to believe that. I'm going to invite you to keep your hand right here in Hebrews 2 and to flip back to a few texts for a moment. Go back to Acts chapter 7, if you would. So we're asking the question, why so much about angels? Was it just that, you know, the author of Hebrews needed some powerful being to compare to the sons that the son would be superior? I think that's true, but I think it goes deeper than that. In that, what I think he's he's doing is he's addressing a group of readers who are tempted to go back into Judaism, to return and to come under the law of Moses. And so he goes after uh, 
or he, he, he reminds them that Jesus is a greater mediator or a greater instrument of revelation. Look at Acts 7, verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Okay, so here we have an angel appearing to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush. Look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. So Moses here is receiving on Mount Sinai living oracles from angels. Look at down at verse 53, Acts 7 verse 53. You receive, the Jews receive the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. Now on your way back to Hebrews, turn to one other text, Galatians chapter 3, and here it will be uh, really obvious. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Flip on over there for just a moment. Galatians 3, 19. Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Here the scriptures proclaim that the law was placed, was given by angelic beings. It's put in place by angels through an intermediary. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. Okay, so what we know then is in Acts and Galatians, angelic beings were the one who brought God's word to humanity in the law of Moses. It gave it to Moses. And so what we need to do is then look in Hebrews 1 and 2 and see if there's any evidence that that's on the mind of the author of Hebrews, and I think it is. And I think you can see this by simply marking one word in your Bible. You'll see it four times. So you look at Hebrews 1, verse 1 with me, and look for the word by in your English Bibles. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So if you mark in your Bible, you underline the word by. He first compares the revelation that comes by prophets to the revelation that comes from the Son. It came by the prophets. Look at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. See, the authors make a comparison uh, by prophets, by his Son. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 2. Chapter 2 and verse 2. For since the message declared by whom? angels. So the reason there's so much in this text about angels is because he is telling people who are tempted to go back under the law of Moses that was mediated by angels that Jesus's message, the message that comes from the Lord, is greater. Look at Hebrews 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. You see, it's obvious in the grammar, the text. Chapter 1 is primarily about prophets and a message from the Son. Chapter 2 is about angels and their revelation and the revelation that came after that through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to look, I want to look very closely at the warning then that he gives about Jesus being greater in his revelation than angels. 
The warning comes in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, the warning is very clear. It comes in two commands. Look there. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There are actually two commands in the text here. The first command is, we must pay close attention to. Must pay close attention to the things we've heard about Christ. So, intellectually, we are to keep these things in the front of our mind and as our focus. And morally, we are paying close attention to these things if we are living in accordance with what we have heard from Jesus. Okay, so in verse 1, there's this call to spiritual alertness. Pay close attention to what we have heard. And then that leads to the second command at the end of verse 1, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. We are to give heed to these things, pay close attention, so that we do not slip away, it could be translated, from them. The words drift away represent a a passive verb here, something that happens to us. And it's a very strong verb that's only used one time in the entire New Testament. Here it is. This is the one warning that you will hear from this pulpit about drifting away. There are other ways authors can describe it, but this word is a powerful word. It's a nautical word that's used of ships drifting away from their anchor. Maybe their anchor breaks loose and they dangerously drift away. The verb for drift away is also used of water that leaks away from a faulty jar in first century days. So you have a jar that's got a crack or something and the water drifts away, it slips away through the crack gradually over time. Words are used of objects that go in the wrong direction, like uh, in one case of a piece of food that goes down the windpipe. Shouldn't go that direction, goes a different way. The, the point uh, of these commands here is we should pay very close attention so that we do not drift away from these words from the sun. Now, in a moment of application, as we go any further here, I think what he's saying is we cannot grow apathetic about the message that we have heard that comes from Jesus Christ. And I just want, I want to ask you to consider uh, how closely you are paying attention to the words of Jesus Christ. You know, we're we're coming off of a Thanksgiving break, and uh, I know that in some ways this is unfair, but, but can I just ask you, How well do you daily give attention to the words of Jesus Christ? I mean, how much or how close attention do you give? I think it's it's quite dangerous for us. I, I think no doubt some people here are quite confident in their own relationship with God, yet for all practical purposes, they neglect the revelation that comes from the Son in their day to day lives. They ignore it. They, they don't pay close attention to it. I, I think that's dangerous for us. I, I was reflecting this, uh, this week on what Jesus said about his disciples. You are my disciples. And he, he gives, in, in John 8, he gives this challenge. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Now, I know that to abide or to remain in the words of Christ means more than, so much more than simply having your devotions. 
giving attention to the word in your day-to-day walk, but I mean, do we really suspect that we will remain or abide in the words of Jesus Christ if we are not normally, daily, in his word, rejoicing in what he gave to us? Thanksgiving break is not over. You got one day left. Maybe you haven't been daily abiding in the words of Jesus. It's not over. You could still read Hebrews today, right? You got plenty of time today. Read through Hebrews today and see what the author says about the Son of God and the revelation that he's given. Are you abiding in the words of Jesus? Don't neglect these words lest you drift away from him. So we must give attention to Christ's revelation of salvation so that we do not drift away. Now, the way I take the rest of the text, starting verses 2 through 4, I see that the author has given three reasons why we, can't, we have to pay attention so that we don't drift away. Three reasons. Number one, first, we must heed these words because even the law punished those who disobeyed. Look at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. The author of Hebrews is not degrading the revelation that comes through angelic beings to Moses for the people of Israel. No, he starts by saying it was a reliable word. It was sure and steadfast or valid in binding. And it was authoritative, and I think that's a point he'll make out of this. This was an authoritative word from God, the law of Moses. In that, if you committed transgressions, you know, you stepped over known boundary markers, you did what you know to be wrong, you disobeyed the law, or if you were disobedient, meaning you were uh, unwilling to hear or submit to the law of Moses, then the law repaid for you just retribution. Now, just to illustrate this for a moment, I invite you to turn back to one more passage in your Old Testament Scripture. Go back to Numbers for a moment. Numbers. Okay, and I want to show you the way the author of Hebrews is arguing here. Numbers 15, we're going to look at verses 30 through 36. What he's saying here is the law of Moses, given from God through angelic beings to Moses for Israel, was reliable and authoritative. If you broke it, there would be consequence for you. Look at Numbers 15 and verses 30 through 36. This, of course, is in the story of the first generation of the Israelites who just keep failing and breaking the law, and we keep seeing over and over again what happens to them. But look at verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he's despised the word of the Lord, broken his commandment, that uh, person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had been made clear, uh, had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside of the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. So in this passage, the congregation of Israel stones a man for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. You see that? Did you catch that? That's a severe consequence, don't you think? 
Yet for this man, this was willful disobedience. This was a sin with a high hand. He knew exactly what Sabbath regulations were, and he chose to disobey them. He chose to work on the Sabbath and break Sabbath regulations, and so consequence came upon him. In other situations, just in the book of Numbers, people are held accountable through earthquakes and stonings and snakes and incineration and other acts of God and man. See, the point I'm trying to make here is that the law brought accountability. As John MacArthur says, if you broke the law, the law broke you. Okay, now go back to Hebrews. If you broke the law, the law broke you. I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is you must heed the words that come from the Son because even the law held people accountable if you disobeyed God's revelation. Okay, now we're going to make that even more clear in a moment. The second reason I I think he gives for why you need to to heed the words of Christ are found in the middle of verses 3 and then into verse 4. So look at the middle of verse 3. Since it was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here, you must also heed Christ's word because Christ's words are trustworthy. And what the author of Hebrews is, does here is he just shows you over and over again how his words are trustworthy. They're trustworthy because Jesus Christ proclaimed the message. He come from the Lord originally, and he's already told us all about that in chapter 1. They're trustworthy because other reliable witnesses testified to this as well. And I think this is where we get the author of Hebrews' real purpose. His purpose is not to put himself up on a a pedestal, it's to align himself with his audience and to say, you know, this message of Jesus Christ came from his original group of believers and we all heard that together. This message, and so so some people don't think that the author of Hebrews is Paul, okay? And I know there's debate and we're not going to figure out all of that. They'd say, well, Paul wouldn't talk this way. He He wouldn't put himself in a a group of people who were dependent on other people to give him the Lord's revelation. Okay, I think this could be Paul, but this would be his way of just uniting with the readers. Regardless, what he's saying is, you need to heed the words of, of the Son, Jesus Christ, because it was verified. It came from the Lord himself. Other reliable witnesses heard it, and then finally it's verified by God himself. God himself confirmed the veracity of this message. He did so in many ways. He sent signs and wonders, the text says. The word sign was uh, used of a miracle that was, was really supposed to point you to a greater spiritual truth behind it. The Gospel of John, for instance, you can see many different signs that the author John records that Jesus performed as a means of pointing to the fact that he is the Son of God. And so uh, the author of Hebrews here is just going through a line. You need to listen to the words from the Son because God himself sent signs, these miraculous things that were pointing to a person behind the signs. And he used wonders. Wonders are just like miracles, okay? But, but the, the sense of this word is that there is an awe 
or a wonder that is produced because of the supernatural act. God sends signs and wonders, and he does that at different major and important times throughout the creation of human beings. He did so in the, the Exodus in Egypt. He sent signs and wonders, and he did send the book of Acts repeatedly as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome. He gives signs and wonders, but here, these things, the author of Hebrews are saying, was given by God himself to verify that this message is reliable from the Son. He also used diverse miracles, and he confirmed it as well with spirit-induced gifts. That's what, how I would take, uh, again, in the middle of verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, diverse miracles, and gifts of the Spirit. I think these are spiritual gifts. Not the gift of the Spirit himself, but spiritual gifts, endowments given by the Spirit to uh, men and women upon their conversion uh, in in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit distributed those as he desired or as he willed. So Christ's revelation is completely trustworthy. It has been verified by external witnesses, and God has confirmed it. And so heed the Son's revelation. Two reasons. Even the law brought accountability. And number two, his words have been verified or confirmed by the Lord. But then just to make the, the, the main point of this whole text very clear, there's a third reason, and that's the first part of verse 3 in the form of a question. The author says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The way the author's argument goes in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he goes from lesser to greater. It's an argument from lesser to greater. He believes that the law's revelation authoritatively demanded obedience, but that, it's, but that its accountability does not even compare to the accountability that we have in receiving the Son's revelation. I think we are tempted to think that the new covenant of grace is lower or easier in some way than the old covenant of law under Moses, right? And perhaps there are some true aspects to that thought or that focus. Uh, however, what the author of Hebrews here is saying is regarding our responsibility and accountability to the message, what we, how we choose to respond to this message is even more important than how we respond to the revelation that came from the law of Moses. He asks, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that comes from Jesus Christ? The word neglect here is a word that could be translated disregard, ignore, or to pay no attention to. And since it's the opposite of what uh, he says at the very beginning, you must pay close attention to how well, we escape if we don't pay close attention to such a great salvation. The word neglect was used in Matthew 22 and verse 5 of those who neglected the invitation to a wedding feast. They made light of the invitation. They didn't care about it, didn't consider it. 
and think through it. They ignored it. So what are the ramifications of neglect in this culture? Well, I, I think the point he is making is that if there were consequences, and there were for violations of that which came by God mediated by angels, how much greater will be the consequences for, for the ones who neglect that which is mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the gospel? If we neglect the gospel, folks, there are eternal consequences. And one thing I always like to point out in Hebrews when I get to these strong warnings is the fact that I, I don't believe that the author of Hebrews had omni- omniscient knowledge of his listeners or readers. I think as he's, he's, he's thinking of the congregation, he is dealing with some people who genuine, genuinely know Jesus Christ as their Savior and others who are simply professing his name, but they're not real or genuine. And he doesn't know who, you know, which is which. And men and women, as we close today, before we go to the Lord's table, I'll say the same thing is true in churches across America today, in our world today, our country today. Some so-called believers are carelessly disregarding Jesus, indicating that they were never saved. I want to end our sermon this morning today by reflecting on two words from pastors in large American evangelical congregations. First I read to you, uh, comes from R. Kent Hughes. He is formerly the senior pastor of Wheaton College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. This is what R. Kent Hughes said after years of faithful pastoral ministry. He says, you have to live for some length of time to observe this. But the longer you live, the more you see it. Many who were at one time professing fine Christians imperceptibly drifted away from their earlier, better selves. R. Kent Hughes, Wheaton Church, Wheaton, Illinois. Then John MacArthur. John MacArthur says, after scores of years of faithful pastoral ministry, he said, hell is undoubtedly full of people who never actively opposed Jesus Christ but who simply neglected the gospel of his son, the gospel of God's son, and drifted away. Maybe you think today when you hear this warning that this does not really matter, that what I'm saying doesn't really matter. Well, you have to remember, this is a message about God's son. Sometimes even the most loving, long-suffering people respond in holy anger when you ignore neglect, or abuse someone that they care about. We all know a mother or father who's just normally gracious and kind, but then you mess, you mess with their child. The consequences of ignoring the message about God's Son are enormous. God won't ignore it. This does matter. And maybe you think that it doesn't really apply to you today. I don't think that there may be many people here who are ready or determined to reject Jesus outrightly today. 
I don't know that there are many people who are under the sound of my voice today, either in you know, person or listening to the sermon online, that say, you know, I'm just ready. I've had it. I'm done. I'm just walking away. I don't think there are many here. But rest assured, there are many here today who are in danger of drifting away from Jesus subtly, slowly. What I hear sometimes as pastor of Colonial Baptist Church makes me very concerned about individuals. When I hear it, I always talk to you about it. Okay, so if you, I don't want you to just be all prepared. Did I say something? But I'll just say, even in three years, what I hear from members of Colonial Baptist Church from time to time just makes me extremely concerned. When we place things, objects, desires, goals above Jesus Christ, I think we are in danger of pursuing that more and not Jesus Christ. If you love other things more, dreams, goals, you are in danger of drifting away. If Jesus is just an add-on for you, just an add-on, or if it's just, you know, meh, well, kind of like I, I love Christ, I guess. The revelation from his son is not, does not mean much for you. You are in danger of drifting away. Pay attention to what you've heard about God's son. Embrace him and his work. Will you heed this warning from God? He's given to us in this text. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment of quiet reflection as we prepare for the table, perhaps there are many in our congregation who need to confess their complacency about the way they have received the Son's message. I pray that they would do that. This is revelation from the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the entire universe with one word. And after purifying our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he was given a name. This is not a light message, Father, and so as I challenge our people, I would pray for some in our assembly. Father, there may be someone here today who is right on the edge or brink. As I said, there may not be many of us here today that would be ready to outright reject Jesus. There may be a few. Lord, I pray that this loving warning sign that you give to them about how they treat your son would stir them. I pray that they would confess that sin to you. I pray that they would seek help and accountability in the body here. I pray that we would all exhort one another, encourage one another, and so much the more as we see the day drawing near. 
And so, Father, for that one young man or one young woman who in this assembly is thinking about walking away, I, I pray, Lord, you would help them not to do so. Lord, there are others who are very casual with the words from the Son. Very casual. They don't treasure. Other dreams and goals are on their mind. I, I just pray, Father, that you would allow us to, to really consider our own heart as we approach the Lord's table. I pray that we would be ready to receive and to celebrate the sacrifice of the Son of God for our sins.